Today I'm with Prue Wilwright, nurse midwife and author of The Flying Nurse. Prue's career has ranged from refugee camps in Ethiopia and Tajikistan to working with the Saudi royal family to rural and remote Australia and with the RFDS. Thanks for coming on Care Under Fire, Prue. Thank you very much for having me, Emma. Tell me, first of all, about your younger years growing up in rural New South Wales and what led you into nursing? I grew up, I was fortunate enough to be a farmer's daughter and I grew up with a very, very, you find your own boundaries kind of childhood out in the farm. So we had rivers close by, all the trees you could climb um, and were the house I spent the first 14 years we had to go outside to go to the toilet and go outside to go to the kitchen so it was rough and it was ready and it was it was brilliant um and so I had a very open um outdoors childhood um which definitely has led me um to doing what I love doing today which is being out in nature but um yeah to be a nurse that was never on the agenda that was never I didn't have aunties or anyone in the family that were nurses I had a few people that were physios my grandmother and my um, auntie included so that was the only medical kind of aspect to life I got had any introduction to but it was never a a thing I desired to be being in hospitals and closed in four walls with fluorescent lights was definitely not my idea of fun so um Yeah. yeah nursing was never something that I was intended to do I just kind of fell into it and have loved it ever since I'm very fortunate but um no that my childhood definitely set me up for that and also the life and death aspect of being on the farm with lots of animals the living and dying and breeding and you know that was just such a part of my life and upbringing that um just kind of makes it um, a bit more exposure to that when it when it gets transferred across to um humans because we live we die same as animals so it just kind of has that um comparison there which was helped I think yeah and you did your study in Sydney, right? And then worked some early career stuff there. Um, did my study in Bathurst and then went to Sydney um, to roll Prince Alfred from Bathurst Child Sturt. What's the early career patients that have stayed with you? Have you got any good stories? <laughs> oh, oh, look, I've got kind of with the rotations as you go into nursing in the first few years of your life, you kind of get put into these rotations that you don't generally pick. Like you want the ED and the cardio kind of wards and I got put in renal and gastro wards and HIV and breast cancer. and So I wasn't too overly keen on my um, post-grad um, rotations but I kind of got stuck in renal for a little while and there were some patients there that would be you know they'd go through um, dialysis and they'd be on hemodialysis for years and then while we we're there they'd be accepted for a kidney and then so they go away and have their kidney transplants and then you don't see them anymore and you're used to seeing them every other day well every second day with dialysis um, and then it was like so and then them coming back in and they're like oh my god my life's like I can I don't have to come here every day but you know, here's a gift of thank you for all the years of dialysis you saved my life, blah, blah, blah. So like patients like that, that was really cool because they just, they got better and there was this lovely period of just um, feeling accomplished. Like, yeah, this is a pretty cool job, like to see mm. that um, happen. And only a few years post-graduation in 2012, you went to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And worked at the King Fazal Specialist Hospital. Which involved a bit of work with the Saudi royal family. Correct. It's a bit random. Tell me about that. That What drew you to go to Saudi Arabia? Um, look, I did in um, RPI. I spent a few years nursing on the wards and then I uh, managed to get in to do my midwifery. So I did that at the RPA and University of Technology um, in mm-hmm. Sydney. And then after that, I was I was cooked. I was you know the studying full time, the doing the midwifery. It was full on, and I was just had the travel bug, and so I bailed and um, bought a one way ticket to Africa instead of staying to do my cons- consolidating my skills as is the general progression that people want you to do. Um, so I bought a one way ticket to Africa instead, and then I kind of spent eight months just traveling north um, from South Africa up, and then got back home and I was like, oh, there's so much more out there. I want to go back to Africa. Um, that'd be amazing. And then I was still a really baby nurse. So I came back and joined CCM agency is what it was called. And I think they're still around today and rang them up. And I said, look, I'm keen to go overseas somewhere. And they're like, oh, everyone wants to go to England. So we'll send you to England. And I was 
didn't have any interest in that. And then they're like, oh, we'll send you to Canada. And again, very similar culture, very similar mentality to Australian. So I was like, no, I don't want that. And they said, what about Saudi Arabia? And I was like, oh, my God, I know nothing about it. Absolutely, yes, sign me up. Um, and so it just, yeah, that's where it all began. And it was just this, I had no idea. And the more research I did, and then family all was like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you going there? And it's a locked country and you can't go in and we can't come visit. And, um, you know, they're so strict on women and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, that's why I want to go. Like, it, we get such negative stories about the places and it can't all be negative. So I want to go check it out and actually experience it for myself and see and be exposed to that form of this, such a different culture to ours and also having the privilege to be able to go over there and do that. Like, that's pretty extraordinary. So, yeah, just pack the bags after doing an exceptional amount of paperwork to get the visas and whatnot and then um, off for a year. Yeah. So... I mean, as you as you said, Saudi's got a pretty atrocious human rights record, particularly in their treatment of women. How was that being a female, being a nurse and a midwife over there? Um, I didn't actually. I chose not to practice mid there because I was only a baby. I'd only just did my training and then I didn't stay to consolidate my skills until I travelled. So I really didn't want to be exposed to midwifery in Saudi Arabia because those skills I would yeah. like take home with me and I was just like no like I'm just not into I don't want to do that um and also with the uh, reputation um and treating women badly I just didn't want to expose myself mm. to that so I was I just went to the um royal ward for a bit and then and then moved down to just a general surgical ward so the royal ward as in where they look after anyone from the royal family who may need any kind of medical surgical care. Exactly. So that that was really interesting. And then royals, you think, well, my naivety was like, oh, there's so much, like there's big royals, like the king, the queen, and their, like, their siblings and kids. And it's just no, because um, of the multiple wives and multiple children. So there's about five, 6,000 royals. So like you, oh, I never, there was a special ward yeah. that looked after the, um, the top royals, like the king and the queen, <laughs> and like the royal, the top, to- the top dogs. But, um, yeah, no, I was kind of looking after the ones with royal blood or married into the royal family and have been disabled in a car crash or something, but then they'd be just like living mm. on the ward full time. So that was kind of my exposure to it and um but we used to go to work in these gold lifts and then and then it was more of a we want this kind of attitude rather than you need this kind of thing it was it was very it wasn't really medicine it was just very that was so a lot of them were so privileged and just wanted something right now and you had to like bend over backwards to get it for them right now like they Mm. want a ct for a broken toe when you're like you don't need a ct and they're like, no, I want a CT. And you're like, what? Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you're organising a CT because they want one. And you're like, this is really dumb. Right, yeah. <laughs> I don't quite understand what's happening. <laughs> but it's yeah, just a very, very different um, culture in a way and approach to medicine. And, um, yeah, very, very, very different. But amazing learning opportunity. Polar opposites, I'm assuming, to the way the majority of people lived and received healthcare in Saudi yeah. as well. Absolutely, absolutely, definitely. So it was, yeah, it's just very bizarre. And then book out the whole second room. So you'd have the suite which they'd be in and then they'd have another room, but that'd be where the cooks would come and put up like big banneries full of food and um, they'd have workers that would just come and serve food for all their friends that would come visit them in hospital. You're like, this is a hospital, it's not a party. Like, what yeah. is happening? <laughs> <laughs> um, but then they used to feed us the nurses too so we were happy so we were like alright we'll get fed and um, got tips and got all this yeah, weird and wonderful things so you know it was just very different but I think you go over there and you know if you want the same and you expect the same as your culture and what your education and exposure has given you and then you go over there and you try and implement those like that's just you're just going to get angry and frustrated but just taking the yeah. point of view of you're, this is a privilege to be here. This is a completely different culture to your own. If you don't like it, you don't have to be here. You can leave. Um, so, yeah, and just kind of embracing all that for what it was, I think, um, was a massive learning curve because, yeah, you did get really angry and frustrated there. Um, and then you're just like, hang on a second. 
I choose to be here. I don't have to be here. Um, and then, yeah, just taking, yeah, just learning from the people uh, and what they go through and like their lives and their culture and their food and or how they spend their day to day. Like it was so interesting. After that, or a few years after that, you started doing some work for MSF. Yep. So after Saudi, what did I do after Saudi? Yeah, after Saudi, I came back home and then I, um, I was at a loss. I didn't want to go back to Sydney. I had no interest in city life anymore. Um, I never really did, to be fair. But I didn't want to go back there. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. I really loved the cultural change and the just learning different experiences but desperately needed money to travel and wanted to go travelling and all this kind of stuff. So my fortunately my friends were um, working up in Alice Springs at that time and they're like, oh, I'll just come up here and work. And so I was like, oh, okay. Um and at that time, I had no interest in Indigenous culture or history or anything. I had very much white privilege upbringing and not very educated on the Indigenous Australian culture. So uh, my perception was not very positive. But then coming up here and um, the work opportunities and the healthcare and everything, like I just fell in love with it. And I keep, I've, I keep saying I've been trying to um, leave Alice for the last six years, but I, in reality, it's been nine years since I've been coming and going from here. It's sort of become your new home base. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and massive, massive for work opportunities. So yeah, I came here for a few. I was signed on for three months, and then did two years at the hospital, um, and then had an incredible opportunity where I worked two weeks in maternity and then two weeks in emergency, which was just brilliant, just for. Oh, just the diversity of both midwifery and ED, they're so different. So I did that for a bit and then got an opportunity to go out bush and do remote stuff, which I did for a couple, yeah, a couple of years on and off and then travelled in between and um, that was kind of first exposure to living out bush in communities three months at a time and just providing healthcare for the whole community, which was anywhere between 200 and 500 people. Well, the ones that yeah. I did in the central and then a bit more up in the top end. Yeah, that was just extraordinary, having that um, experience. And then that led to Doctors Without Borders, which was always a dream of mine to kind of do. But being out remote and being having to be so practical thinker and like logistics and thinking outside the box and there's not a big red button on the wall and all that kind of thing really um, helped in transitioning over to humanitarian aid with Doctors Without Borders. Yeah. So... Just back to your Indigenous work for a bit. Yeah. Obviously, you're there, you're doing emergency response, you're doing heaps of primary health care, and I'm assuming you're doing other stuff as well, like looking after people with chronic disease, renal, rheumatic heart disease, <laughs> renal yes. failure. Yeah. Absolutely, everything. yep. yep. <laughs> um, what do you think the biggest barriers are for Indigenous health care in those super remote communities? currently uh yeah look probably like the overcrowding is pretty rife at the moment and like heaps of skin um sores and like um like you've got kids as young as two weeks old with huge impetigo which is a skin infection um or scabies and it's just it's pretty heartbreaking so I think the overcrowding is a big issue hygiene's another issue access to clean water well they have clean water but yeah showers and like it's uh, changing the perception of hygiene because that's it's not really um Mm. high on the priority list so i think that's a big barrier the look we there's a lot of discussion about the access for healthcare at bush but in reality like they have some of the best healthcare in Australia, like they've got planes that will go and pick them up to bring them into the bigger hospitals to treat and then send them back home. So, you know, their access is pretty good in comparison to a lot of the world um, where that's not that's so far, like, um, beyond their health system that, you know, their access is really remote and they don't have the access to get into town yeah. to go to the hospital. So, like, their access out here is pretty good. But, yeah, there's, there's lots of barriers. Like, yeah, overcrowding is probably mm. a big, big one. Um, and with that, it's obviously rife with infection. And if your kid gets impetigo and a sore throat, you know, that then leads to rheumatic heart disease yeah. and and you've got all the um, kidney um, diseases. And so, yeah, that's probably a massive barrier. And you see a lot of issues that relate to that. 
So you always had this drive for adventure and that, and that kind of led yeah. you back to doing your MSF or Doctors Without Borders yeah, work. Yeah, absolutely. And first stop, Tajikistan. Did I say that right? Yep. Yep. Uh, Tajikistan, yeah. but you, you did well. All the stands most. <laughs> are nearby each other there in that part of the world. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so 2016, you went over there. What was your role on that? So, yeah, from being a remote area nurse and then... Again, went for a big trip when I went to Mexico and then had oh, 10 months or so and just with the whole sole purpose of heading south. Um, and then again, came back from a massive trip and a relationship breakdown and all that and was like, oh God, what do I do now? Didn't really want to go back to where I was or anything. I said, oh, perfect opportunity to get into MSF and so applied and managed to get in a two and a half hour interview of one-on-one, which was intense and needed yeah. a bottle of wine after that one and then <laughs> managed to get in which was fantastic being accepted a few months later got placed in Tajikistan and then getting this email saying you know Tajikistan HIV P, um, HIV TB pediatric manager nurse nurse midwife manager um for 12 months and I was like what the hell like Tajikistan I've never heard of the place and then I was a country had no idea so you know madly you're finding it on a map and find this tiny little country of Tajikistan and from that have educated so many of my friends and family that this place exists because again nobody had really heard of it apart from a few but so yeah ended up flying over there in December um so mid-December so spent Christmas over there um and they don't celebrate Christmas because it's a Muslim community but um yeah in 15 minus 15 degrees snow everywhere freezing cold and then Met my team, um, which consisted of I had one nurse and one midwife, and then some translators uh, um, that were kind of working with me, and then a whole other team of people. Like we had social workers and all that that um, came through. But yeah, I kind of got I was in charge of yeah, so HIV, TB, pediatric midwife, nurse manager, and trying to um, give exposure on HIV. Um, in Tajikistan, the government wasn't um, giving any re- recognition that HIV was a problem within the country, um, especially in the paediatric mm. population. So we were finding sats um, and data that were just like, yeah, there was, there was massive issue with HIV in the paediatric population. And so we were just trying to, um, through all the stigma and stuff of that HIV brings, just trying to work around in kind of a waste disposal management kind of process, you know, safe disposable needles and how to safely wash your surgical equipment and blood transfusions and just trying to decrease the number of kids that were getting HIV unnecessarily through the hospital system. So, um, yeah, it was um, not what I was expecting. I was expecting the pictures of MSF, which, you know, full, dust, dirty, malnourished kids and, you know, sleeping in tents and out in the middle of Africa. And I got minus 15 degrees snow everywhere behind a desk for eight hours a day, which was um, difficult because I had no patient contact there Mm. either, which is really hard for me because being a nurse midwife and that's my training. Um, And then all of a sudden be on Excel behind and, you know, doing data with who, who's uh, legible for food packages and who isn't and where are these people living and then what, what segments of air, um, what areas are having high more, more high prevalence of HIV that's acquired by the hospitals and, you know, what does that mean? And so it was a really massive developmental project and I learned through that that I'm not a developmental nurse, midwife, so that was something. And I like more the fast-paced emergency kind of um, projects but... Yeah, so I was there for about four months and then it was kind of recognised that my skills of being nurse midwife were being wasted um, there and I wasn't really happy at all. I love the community, love the people, love the landscape, love the food. Oh, my God, the food was extraordinary. But I loved everything about it, but I hated the work. The work just isn't just wasn't for me at all. Um, so that fortunately that was picked up and recognised by the MSF team and they're like, look, We'll get someone else in, you wait till they come in, train them up, and then we'll send you on to something that's going to better suit your skill set. Um, and I said, yeah, that'd be great because I need patient contact to practice my skills and right now I have none. So, um, so yeah, then I got sent to Ethiopia from Tajikistan. Well, I came home mm-hmm. for a few months, but um, – and then, yeah, off to Ethiopia, which was 
the definitely fulfilled all of the expectations of what um, Doctors Without Borders was all about. So in Tajikistan, you were in a like a hospital in a city, freezing cold. Um, we were just yeah, we were just in an office space, and then we had access to the hospitals, but weren't allowed to access or treat the patients. Yeah, and the Ethiopia. Yeah job was really in a refugee camp so yeah we lived in the refugee camp or in the Agnawak village next to the refugee camp as opposed to that project management work which you know is really important and it is you know yeah, yeah it's but it's, it has a place it's it's, it's 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 if you don't do that then the rest doesn't work yeah but, and all the logistics yeah. and that important stuff but yeah it's not for everyone um no so what were you doing in Ethiopia um so Ethiopia was just complete tailspin on you know getting fed three meals a day and sitting in an office quite luxurious and you know working eight hours and then going home to your nice compound which had a sauna and nice kitchen and everything to living and working in um uh, just outside a refugee camp in the south of Gambella region called um Fignito or Fignito and so we were there and living in a tukul where the air conditioning clicked off with the generator at 4am in the morning and a second later you have a bead of sweat going down your forehead. So the luxurious living was gone. The food was, well, if you've ever eaten Ethiopian food, it was amazing Um, and we were fortunate to have good food there. But, yeah, living in the dust and um, how you keep your clothes white was just impossible and then dealing with massive emergencies with no access to healthcare and you're the only expat with an extraordinary team of local midwives um, dealing with horrific maternity emergencies Mm. um, on a a 24-hour basis. Like I was on call for four months straight and had a team of uh, eight midwives, I think it was, and they rotated around and would call me for emergencies and I'd be there during the day delivering um, so many babies and lots of preterm babies, so a lot of death and a lot of... um, postpartum hemorrhages and a lot of uh, we wouldn't know the gestation of any of these babies that were coming in because there was no antenatal care Um, so delivering babies that were never compatible with life and then dealing with very very unwell septic mothers and so yeah it was just full on it was kind of exactly what I well not exactly what I expected but it was kind of more in the genre of being hands-on being exposed to some pretty horrific things Yeah, I loved it. It was just extraordinary being, one, the privilege of being there and being put in a position where you can witness and actually be part of building up a project and teaching midwives like they did. They weren't taught neonatal um, resuscitation, so the baby would come out flat and instead of giving them just a few breaths of air, which um, we are fortunately enough and we have that education here, but over there they didn't have that, they weren't fortunate enough to have that education. So teaching my staff just that simple trick with an ambu bag, which I actually brought over from Australia, just to give two breaths to a baby that hasn't cried yet, you know, mm-hmm. that was brilliant. So at the end of my placement, after seeing no neonatal um, resus being performed, and then at the end people were doing, you know, these two breaths to the babies that w- weren't crying and doing proper well, the golden the golden hour or the golden minute or whatever they call I can't remember what they call it, but to get that baby to cry and transition over to the extra uter- external uterine world. Um, so, you know, it was, that was really cool of having to do that. And whatever I taught them, they taught me a thousand, a thousand things more, like uh, extraordinary nurses, uh, midwives, mm-hmm. um, and had so much exposure and experience in their field. Yeah, you're in a refugee camp because there was a heap of political civil unrest. Yes. So lots of displaced people at that time. Yeah. So how many people were roughly living in this camp at various times? Um... In so for the first four months, I was down in a, the Pignito, and that was that had about oh, I think fifty to sixty thousand. Wow! Um, but fortunately, um, a couple of years prior to me being there, MSF had opened up a hospital, which was the one I was working in, and a couple of health posts within the refugee camp itself. And then, as the hospital, we service both the Agnawak community, which is the local Ethiopian community and the Nawer mm. refugees so we would provide health care to everyone regardless of political religion blah blah stance as MSF stands for but we they MSF were expecting you know a good 100,000 refugees to come south from 
South Sudan to the, the, the area in which we were um, servicing. Um, but sadly, they went north instead. So all of a sudden, the funds with MSF were being put into um, um, this hospital that had the capacity to cover the local population through the Bureau of Health and the Refugee Council. And then nothing, um, no healthcare was um, being done for the refugees mm. up north. So it was decided that we'd pull the pin on Pugnito um, project um, and hand over to the Bureau of Health and hand over to the Arrow Refugee Council and split up the healthcare and um, they'd still have the hospital and we provide all the provisions and all that kind of stuff and um, help them and get started. And then we all, then MSF moved up north where there was over 100,000 refugees with no health posts, no, they didn't have jerry cans to carry water. They, were, they didn't have blankets. They didn't, just absolutely dire situation. And then with hygiene, like the toilets were terrifying, more death traps than toilets. Mm. And so really, really... Um, not a nice area of the refugee camp. So we went up there and then we kind of set up some health posts and um, I had the responsibility to open a 24-hour maternity, me and an extraordinary team of people, and then um, sort of get that open and provide a service that was never rec- um, given before. So that was, that was yeah, very difficult because we had no running water, no electricity. We didn't have a fleet. We didn't have security. We didn't have staff. So I was really starting from yeah. scratch and then using every resource and every network ability and every kind of pool to get staff and to get equipment and pharmacy and to set up a maternity department as quick as we could to service the women. And what sort of obstetric support did you have? Did you have any capacity to do like emergency cesarean or a no, um, we... re- removal of retained products or for those like septic ruptured ectopic pregnancies yeah. could you go to theater we... at all no sadly not we didn't have any um theater wow. um near us um, we didn't have blood transfusions, so no blood transfusions, no theatres. Um, the closest when we were up in the north, fortunately, was only an hour away to Gambella um, to a hospital there and they could do um, surgery. But sadly, when I was there, they, they weren't the best. So they might cut the baby out, the baby would die, but the mother would be alive, but then the mother would come back in with severe sepsis. Mm. So, and, and a classical scar, which don't get practiced in um, the Western world anymore. But yeah. so you see these really brutal wounds, and these sick, sick women that have come back and they've had full hysterectomies, oh. and the baby's dead, and you know all those kind of things. So your so MSF were um, getting involved with that hospital to hopefully better um, provide them with some education and some sustainable um, provisions to do better healthcare but yeah when I it was always like you so it was a bit of a one-way ticket a lot of people didn't come back um but equally so so many did come back so mm. that's like that's unfair to say but yeah no no blood transfusions no cesarean sections um uh, we do our own manual removal through bimanual removal of products that's all mm. you could do and we had a tool called the MVA which was the manual vacuum aspiration which was to clear out um, products of conception from miscarriages that weren't um, that were still bleeding. So you could yeah. put in this device and then basically suction out the contents of the uterus um, with no pain relief or anything. It was brutal. Really, no light sedation. No, nothing. We had nothing like that, which was really sad. And yeah, no, that wasn't. It wasn't well practiced to use morphine. Um, yeah, mm. and that it just wasn't. That was culturally just that wasn't really accepted. So we had it, but it wasn't. It was not really used, which was really interesting. But yeah, so no, we we did what we could with what we had. Um, definitely saw my fair share of death and weird and wonderful, amazing deliveries of breech births and with triplets and mm-hmm. things. You just have no idea yeah. what's happening. You deliver one baby, you're like, all right, sweet, and then all of a sudden, like, oh shit, there's another one. <laughs> like. I didn't palp that tummy well, like, damn it. And they're like tiny because of their preterm and the mother's got malaria and they're like, oh, my God. So, yeah, it was extraordinary. Yeah, and I, I imagine the full scope of your <laughs> skill set would have been utilised very frequently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. That, I think um, Ethiopia definitely made me a midwife yeah. before I was, you know, practicing but not 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 <laughs> just within the western yeah. 
hospital system which says red buttons on the wall and quick go to Caesar and CTG yeah. and yeah, all that and then going to somewhere where you, we're practising by head torch. Yeah. How did you reconcile um, that sort of moral injury and that where outcomes, you know, if you had all the resources would have potentially been better? Were oh, you able to kind of say, well, what absolutely. we're doing is better than nothing and we're doing everything we can with yeah. what we got or did you kind of... You know, did that kind of hit you at any point? Absolutely. Coming back was so much worse than going over and realising how unbelievably wasteful we are with all our resources and, you know, you're a midwife and going through a pack of blueies for one birth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you just change it when there's a drop of something on it. Exactly, and you go through a box of gloves and 20 syringes and over there you're just like, you don't have that luxury. So we didn't even have blueies. We just wiped down our leather delivery chair and then put on the next woman to deliver like it was just it was crazy but you know coming back was so much worse going over was again you're not in the environment that you grew up in and you had that education you are somewhere completely external to what you're used to and so your exposure is always going to be that little bit shocking but you I had a choice to be there or to not and I could have walked away at any time and so but being able to provide and be able to teach, you know, those simple neonatal resource and then knowing yeah. that that's going to be sustainable moving forward. And then also the aspect on, um, not the aspect, the perception on death is so much different over there. Like it was just part of the day-to-day. So there wasn't mm. great mourning for babies dying. Like it was just so common. Accepted that that would be something that could well happen. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So I remember deliver- delivering twins one day. And one passed away and one survived. I was telling the mother and the grandmother in broken English with a translator, you know, the baby's died and I'm sorry and all that. And their response was goa, goa. And goa in nowhere means good. I'm like, no, no, not good. Baby dead, bad, mm. like really bad. I'm sorry. And then, um, and then I walked away. I'm like, I was so confused. And I'm like talking to the translator. I'm like, what? How do they understand? Like they've only got one baby, not two. And they're like, yeah, no, they understand. But um, it's good because they have much more chance in surviving one baby than they do surviving the two babies. So I was like, oh, my God, that's 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 hard. <laughs> like it's a bit of a reality shift. So she's thinking about how am I going to feed these? Yeah, and they've got two toddlers at home and, you know, no form of contraception to stop more babies coming and so to lose one wasn't like that was that was good because – yeah, at least the one that has survived can have all the breast milk and has more chance of survival. So, yeah, just such a different way of life and perceptions and, yeah, really interesting. Really tough, really tough people, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Did they have support in labour from, like, other women or friends, family, yeah, partners? Yeah, absolutely. The women would look after the women mm. and so many women had gone there beforehand. So within the refugee camp they had traditional birth attendants um, and their training was just through exposure and experience and just being dubbed kind of a birth attendant really. Yeah. And they, they would deliver babies and they were quite trusted within the community things we never got to witness that because they'd always come in with the baby or the really unwell mother with an obstructed birth or mm. something they'd, br- they'd bring women in as necessary when it hadn't gone to plan when it wasn't all normal yeah yeah when it, exactly and that was really interesting because we'd get women too late um and the baby would die and fortunately only had one maternal death when I was there which was quite extraordinary that only one woman died yeah, they come too late and then all of a sudden the hospital, which was new and you've done a lot of community awareness and involvement to try and get the trust within the community for people to come and then the word gets out that, you know, babies are dying and a mother's died there so don't go there, it's bad juju. And you're like, oh, God, so then you're trying to educate. No, they came too late. You need to come when first you get baby pains. And um, So, yeah, really interesting amount of um, conversation with the community, just about community awareness and what we provided and when to mm-hmm. come and... Um, yeah, having the deaths was definitely a setback in gaining the trust of the community to use yeah. us as a service. And how was MSF to work for? Did you, like, receive any remuneration or was this all just sort of part of gaining experience and exposure for you and did they support you well? Yeah, look, they do. I think I think the more you're involved with them, the more the cracks kind of show, um, like any workplace and that's that's the world over it doesn't really matter where you work but the longer you are you realize that it's not all 
like there's a lot of political yeah. stuff in all workplaces um, and sadly MSF is not exempt from that so they are a massive organization and there are a lot of holes within it but they do extraordinary work for what they have and I always remember a story when I was in Kyrgyzstan um, doing some stuff for Tajikistan um, stuff but um, I was talking to a guy and I'm like I was having a bad day I'm like everything's just shit humanitarian shit everything I just was hating on MSF hating on like how unfair the world was and just having a bad day and he's like, Prue, you have to remember. He's like, everything is shit. He's like, but MSF is one of the best smelling shit there is, but it's still shit. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And it was just like, yeah, and you go to Red Cross or you go to some other humanitarian aid, like it's all the same, like you were trying yeah. so hard that there is so many cracks in it. But it's, And on, on a face-to-face kind of value, like I um, got supported really well. Um, you get money put into your Australian account back home. Um, and you don't reach into that pocket at all. So you don't pay for transport food. You have a per diem and all your accommodation, transport, everything's paid for. So you come back after mm. nine months away and then all of a sudden look in your bank account and it's just been building and building and building because you haven't spent anything. And if you don't have any outgoing mortgages or car repayments yeah. or anything, then you come yeah. back and you're like, oh, holy shit, I saved 20 grand. That's cool. Wouldn't have done that if I was in Australia. So from that aspect, like that's good financially. But again, you need to not have stuff to come out of your account while you're away or have that all sorted. But um, and then like yeah, they kind of give you um, psych evaluations, and you can go and see your chosen psych um, person when you come home if you are struggling to re adapt back to your own culture and so they do they do provide good services and um but again they are a massive organization and there's always better to be done but they are um they are huge and they do do a good job did you feel your experiences with msf hardened you as a person Mm, i definitely burst the bubble of life and isn't all rosy and cherry yeah cherry and rosy i don't know what that means um yeah, and then you really, really realise and being exposed to a refugee camp. You can't just go travel and wander around a refugee camp and take photo like that's that's it's it's not you can't do it. It's, you have to be there for a purpose. And so actually being and living within a refugee camp and being exposed to sheer utter poverty and like amazing human joy for a simple gift of a pen to one of my translators I gave a pen to and he treated it like it was a bit of gold like he's like oh my goodness this is a gift of a pen and this means I can educate myself and I can educate my kids I don't have paper and then he was joking that I was lucky because my skin is white I can write on my skin with the black pen and I can then educate myself through using the my white skin as the paper and he couldn't because he was black and the black pen can't be seen on black skin and anyway it was a very funny conversation but this gift of um a pen was just I just never forget it it was like it's a it's literally a second like it's a tenth hand pen that I just kind of um gifted you for not even a gift it was just kind of have this kind of thing and it was just such a extraordinarily humble genuine response of how pure and how beautiful this gift was um that really um the the perception and everything it's just totally warped it um you know, and you give a pen here and, you know, they chuck it in the drawer full of 100 mm. other pens. And it's just very different. So, you know, it definitely did harden me, I think, and definitely did have a, um effect on coming back and just how wasteful we are. And now I'm so much more diligent with with waste and try not to over-utilise things and, um, you know, they're half the world's obese and half the world's starving. Like it's just it's such extremes and... Um, that's frustrating. So depends how much you want to go down that path, but it does get extremely heartbreaking yeah. and a frustrating path to go down. Um, but being exposed to both of those um, cultures, it's, yeah, there's no there's no fairness in the world when it comes to that. It's very cruel. So, yeah, I'd say it's definitely hardened. How was practice, clinical practice back in Australia after that? It's <laughs> a bit of a uh, reverse culture shock. Oh my goodness, yes. I always struggle worse with reverse culture shock than actually going over and just immersing myself in a new culture. Yeah. Because 
when you come back you've learned and you've changed a person because you've been exposed to something that's completely different to your own and then you come back and then you're expected to be the same person and you're just not because you can never be because of what you've seen and experienced so coming back and I um, came back and was at a again bit of a loss about what to go to next and then I thought it was time to try and settle down so I went working out bush for a bit and then came back and managed to put a deposit on a house and so I bought the house and went to the regional um, hospital and worked at the maternity department there and it was extraordinarily hard to come back to that because one the waste was just unbelievable like that you open a pack of you would have seen them the sterile packs like mm. the suture packs and they're metal scissors with you know artery forceps and you know all this stuff and then it's a one use only then you chuck them in the bin and they're like it's a metal pair of scissors yeah. like that's how are you chucking them in the bin like they can be clean they can be reused like and they're sharp they're great scissors I have a whole drawer full of like this stuff because <laughs> I hate throwing them out but um you come back and then you have to and then you're trying to get used to how wasteful it all is and I remember looking after a woman part of my first week of coming um, back to the western medicine and she had preeclampsia and she was quite unwell and you know we're setting up a mag infusion and doing blood pressures and you know we're making sure get organizing a transfer to a bigger hospital and all those things and then a, a fellow midwife came in and she's like opera you need to go on your break I'm like what and she's like you get a 15 minute tea break and I'm like I'd I, a break like what is this like I'm not used to breaking I'm used to doing you know, 12 18 hour days in a refugee camp like breaks were not a thing um and so she forced me out of the room and I'm like no no there's stuff to do there's stuff to be done and she's like no 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 go and sit down for 15 minutes and I'll do this and you know come back in and I was like okay so I looked at her warily I'm like this is weird and then went into the tea room and all the other midwives are chilling out they're used to it they've got the shoes off you know they're enjoying their 15 minutes and I was just sitting on the edge of my feet <laughs> of the seat watching the time for 15 minutes so I could go back and finish my work and it was just like oh that I soon grew out of that it took me about probably a yeah. month no three weeks and I was like all right just kick the shoes off 15 minutes and <laughs> I get I'll, I'll get my breaks now but yeah I also came back from Ethiopia and before I went to the regional New South Wales hospital I came out bush again um, which was a really nice transition because it is very similar the work out bush to that like the logistical thinking thinking outside the box you're it there's no red button on the wall kind of um into yeah in terms of the healthcare and things like things can go desperately wrong and you're it and figuring out what to do and so coming out bush was a nice transition and I find so many people in Alice Springs and the Northern Territory are kind of done the MSF and they're trying to transition kind of back over east or whatever and they just kind of get stuck here a little bit because they um, enjoy the medicine so much. Yeah. I find um, I found probably one of the biggest transitions from working overseas to back in the public health system in Australia was just the amount of paperwork and bureaucracy and policy that actually doesn't, it doesn't actually support patient care a lot of the time. It actually detracts from it and you feel like you're nursing the computer and not the person, which is such a shame. Yeah, I think exactly what you're saying before and that was that was really heartbreaking and then putting me, um, mechanical devices on everyone like the CTG mm. and doing blood pressures every five minutes and all this stuff that we just didn't have over there and then all of a sudden that's what you're looking at you're looking at the ctg monitor not looking at the mother and the baby like the mother and palping the baby properly yeah and the computer work was just mm. oh, it is relentless um but yeah no that's that i completely agree with you that is really hard and, and just doing stuff because uh, someone said it was a good idea but there's no reason why that woman needs to do that but now it's written in policy that now they need to do it, but it's no one really agrees with it. But because it's written in the policy, then you find yourself doing this stuff yes. that doesn't need yeah. to be done. You're wasting money and it's time and resources and you know, for what? For I, for I still don't know half the stuff and why we do it. <laughs> it it's definitely taken away a lot from um, patient care and you nailed it. You're more nursing the computer than you are the patient, which is really sad. And just being with them, you know. And, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So you've written a book? I've written a book. Yeah, The Flying Nurse. Yes. Saving Lives and Swaddling Babies from Outback Australia to Africa and Beyond. Cool title. 
Thank you. Um, what made you want to pen your experience? <laughs> um, look, it, I didn't. It was never a goal of mine to write a book. It was never a, a dream of mine to be an author. It was. I'm, I'm suck at English. I'm a terrible speller. I hate sentence structure, paragraphs, anything to do with essays. I just hate. So to write a book was never ever on my agenda because that is ridiculous. That's seventy thousand words, and I struggle writing two thousand on a topic. So it just came about through a series of saying yes and just being, um, well, I'm a yes woman. So the yes person I am. And then, um, on a panel trying to get, um, with rural doctors network in New South Wales. Um, and that was just trying to talk to metropolitan nurses and doctors and trying to get them out remote and out bush and kind of get them out of the comfort zone of the big tertiary hospitals and get out to regional places. And so I did this panel as a uh, favor to one of my friends that was on the organizational committee. And then that ended up with uh, the panel spokesperson calling me up and having a chat about, you know, my experiences. And he's like, oh, my God, you need to write a book. You've done so much. I was like, huh, funny, everything's written because part of my self-care, which is a massive part of going to all these places and being exposed to so much and my memory sucks. So I journal every day. So Mm -hmm. it was all written. So I kind of passing comment to this guy and he's like oh my god it's all written he's like look I've written a book through this Hachette um, publishing agency I'll get you in touch with my publisher nothing ventured nothing gained what do you think I was like oh yeah no pass on the number great happy for a chat and see what see what comes of it and then amazingly I was in Sydney you know a couple of days later and um, managed to tee up a coffee with um, the publisher and then they recorded me and then they um, wrote a version of my story and then presented that to the board and it wasn't accepted at first and then a few months later they represented it and then was accepted the second time and then ended up in a contract to write a book. And then from the beginning I was never a writer. Like oh, this is, I was like, I'm not a writer, I'm a nurse midwife. Like I, I'm not writing my story. Like that's ridiculous. Um, and they said, look, we'll get you a ghostwriter. So because I had everything written in my journals, I then just had to very trustingly and willingly hand over all of my scribbles and deepest, darkest thoughts and secrets and everything to a stranger um, to read to then make into a book. So it was definitely a, a practice in trust with that. But, yeah, so I was kind of like the journals are just going to die with me and that's going to be it. So if I can inspire some young nurse or young high school kid to become a nurse and travel the world and it was an extraordinary career like that's if I can do that to one person like that's pretty cool so I kind of that was the whole um, motivation to continue with the process to write the book they must have been pretty keen yeah take it on yeah yeah it it was a big gamble on them too because yeah to me I'm nothing extraordinary and then I hang out with all people that have done very similar things to me so I'm nothing special when it comes to that but to then be picked out to say you write your story it was like why are you writing my story like these guys are way more interesting like they got way better stories than me (laughs) and yeah so that was really just very bizarre process of allowing your story to be told and then being trying to yeah just allow yeah being letting it go out in the world and then having people come and tell you your story back to you is really interesting um but, yeah. you know, it's, it's definitely a big learning curve, but I'm, I'm glad I've done it. And it's, yeah, it's still, I'm still getting, I still haven't read it. That's, I shouldn't tell you that, but it's true. I, <laughs> I haven't read the final book. Really? Yep. Yep. So I can't kind of bring myself. There was a lot of edits at the end and they had to take out a lot of the Indigenous content um, for cultural sensitivity reasons. And so what I said and what's now said yeah. is the sugar, the butter-coated sugar version, not the actual gumption so yeah. I read it I'm like you've missed out like except like the actual story <laughs> like, that's not the story <laughs> I'm sure that would hurt a lot having that that left out yeah, yeah. and yeah. then also not having much of a say because it's so far in the process and um yeah so it was definitely a a really interesting learning curve to do it but again I'll, I'll read it one day I'm getting closer I think to kind of being just ready. making amends and being at peace with it and everything but yeah I think I kind of read some. I'm like, you've changed the story. And then I shut it closed. I'm like, damn you. And <laughs> get angry. So I'm like, I'll just put it on my bookshelf. <laughs> I'll read it one day. 
I've got random texts off Instagram with people, young nurses, just going, oh, my goodness, I want to do everything you've done. This is what I'm doing now. What do you recommend I do next? And so, yeah. like, that's really cool. And, like, the whole reason was to inspire some young medics and then getting texts from young medics asking for advice. It's like, oh, cool. I have, I have inspired them. So mission yeah. accomplished. Well, that leads me really on to my next question, which was what advice would you give other clinicians wanting to – you know go and do some work with an NGO internationally yeah um just do it I think we um get really bogged down and we're not good enough and you could be nursing for 40 50 years and it would still never prepare you for what you're going to see over there I think get your fundamentals in get your few years of really good experience under your belt and know your limitations and be be consciously aware of your practice like you two three years out you you will know a lot, but you're not going to know it all. So just being mm. consciously aware of that. But also if going out to an NGO and being in by yourself in a place, like you're never, ever going to be prepared for that. And I think if you if the desire is there to go, just go, just apply. Um, and even if they say no the first time, great, they're going to give you some direction that you can then, you know, pursue and then apply the next year or whatever to then eventually fulfill those dreams. But yeah, just say yes and just get out there and give it a go because you're never, ever going to be completely prepared for it. I know I definitely wasn't and I'm so happy I've done it um, and I'll do it again hopefully. But, yeah, just say yes and get out of your comfort zone. Get out of the hospitals. Mm. Go go out remote. Go go do some work with um, in safe injection rooms or just expose yourself to some um, stuff like that or some women's shelters or whatever it is. Um, to just get out of your comfort zone, I think, is really important. Shake yeah. it up a bit. Good advice. Yeah. Best and worst parts of being a retrieval nurse with the current <laughs> employer? Oh, look. Oh, the RFDS. No, I love it. It's The work I do is nine weeks on, nine weeks off. So nine weeks just full-time roster and then I have nine weeks off, which is extraordinary. So then that mm. I can feed into my adventure spirit and buy tickets to go overseas and or just go doing some locum work or go out remote and do some work or just work here at the local hospital in Alice or whatever I want. So nine weeks off every nine weeks is just I, I have to pinch myself. I don't think it's quite true and I'm sure they're going to take it away from me at some point. But for now, that's the best part of my job. And so when I come in for nine weeks, I'm fresh. I've got, you know, I'm not burnt out at all. I've got energy. I'm so happy to be there. Yep, will put me in a job of restocking all day. Happy to do it. But um, the worst part is probably just bureaucracy just again like you get into a job like this and it's brilliant but the politics and the bureaucracy and all that is just it's exhausting and um, sadly RFDS is not exempt to it either and it's just that kind of bears um, a lot of bears you down a bit it just kind of gets very in your face and you can't, sadly can't avoid it and I get to walk away every nine weeks but yeah probably just the bureaucracy is mm. the bad part but the work itself is brilliant I love it even getting up in the middle of the night to go and fly to a community you've never heard of to pick up a patient and then fly them back is fantastic. Prue, thanks for your time in coming on to Care Under Fire and for sharing your experiences. And thanks for your service with MSF and within Australia. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, And your contribution to nursing as a whole. It's been lovely chatting with you. And you too. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Hope I haven't talked your ear off. Not at all.